Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Anat Ben-Shaul. Anat's presentation for Limud 2020 grew out of research she was doing for a novel about the Yemeni Jewish community and their immigration to Israel. In the process of researching, she began to understand the history of her community. I just knew some scattered stories from the family. They never connected to the historic context. And to be honest, many times I thought that they were inventing stories. (laughs) It sounded like 1,000 nights in a night. You said in your session that the passing of your aunt Mazal mm-hmm. is what inspired you to do your research. Yes. So I was wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your aunt mm-hmm. and a little bit about what that process was like, how you were inspired to start the research. First, thank you for asking this question. <laughs> I really wanted to explain more about this backstory in the presentation, but I didn't have time, and the material I had to cover was uh, there was a lot, so I had to focus on the history. So thank you for this opportunity to say the background story. She was my dad's sister, older sister. As I said, there were nine surviving siblings. And she had a very tragic story. In Yemen, as I mentioned in the presentation, they married the kids when they're between 9 to 12. One of the reasons was because of the orphan's decree that stated if the father died, the child, if it belonged to a minority group, had to convert to Islam. So it was for the community an insurance program to protect the children. But it became somehow the custom. It's still there in Yemen today. They still marry at this age. And when she was nine, her cousin, who was much, much older than she was, and he was already married with grandchildren. He was married to two wives, I think, asked to marry her. And she heard him asking for her hand from her dad, and she panicked and told her mother about this. Now, the family knew about this cousin, and they all agreed that it's not going to be a good match. He wasn't an easy person. They said that his first wife died of sorrow. So her mother told her, tell your father, even if he separates your blood in one pot and your organs in another pot, you're not going to marry him. But she was scared. She ran away to her brother and his wife, who lived in another region in Yemen. She stayed with them for three years. Then she came home for the wedding of her other brother, Natan, who was the first mayor of our hometown. There is a mystery here about this background story. I grew up to believe that when she came for the wedding, uh, the family caught her and forced her to marry. But it didn't sit well with me because what I knew about my grandfather. So I kept on asking questions, and then another even more interesting story happened. (laughs) Apparently, this cousin was uh, dealing with black magic, Hmm. and he was the brother-in-law of my other aunt, the eldest aunt, Shoshana. 
So Shoshana told me that he gave her a note in which he wrote something which was black magic and he told her to tap it on Mazal's neck. So she did it, she didn't know what it was. And then uh, Mazal came to her parents and asked to marry him. Hmm. She was 12 and her parents were shocked and they tried to change her mind, but she wouldn't. So they married her at the same time when her brother got married. But the next day she escaped. She didn't want to. And that was about three months before the family immigrated to Israel. So it's about 1950. When she came to Israel, she asked for divorce, but he refused to give it to her. So because he was married to another wife already, he was sent to jail for refusing to divorce her. But then they wanted to do different health check for him to enter jail. And one of them was x-ray and he thought it was work of the devil. So he immediately he got scared and agreed to sign the divorce. But then he sent a letter to all the Yemeni communities in Israel asking them not to marry her because she's still his wife. So nobody married her. Uh, so she was never married, never had children. She lived with us. We lived with my grandmother. My father is the youngest one. And my grandfather died before my parents got married. So my father stayed with his mom and my mother joined them and so we lived with my grandmother and this single aunt so she's really part of my upbringing and actually there is a story that she saved my life as mm -hmm. a baby my mom told me that i wasn't a very easy baby i was crying a lot so she was very tired the whole time because i was crying and in one of the times she just fell asleep on me and my aunt who passed by and she uh, heard my muffling crying, uh, she immediately turned my mom away from me and she saved my life. Mm. And we've been very close. Actually, close to all my aunts. I call them every Thursday night, uh, mm. which is Friday morning. So I talk to them every week. So it's really sad that over the years I have less phone calls to make. It mm. breaks my heart. I have this telephone book. Uh, and now I'm only left with three aunts, two from my dad's side and one from my mom's side. Uh, mm. The youngest sister of my mom has Alzheimer's, so you cannot talk to her now. I grew up with them living in Roshan. Most of my family was living just a few blocks away. Mm. So we would walk to each aunt. And in Israel, in Roshan, it was like you just pop and say, hello, I'm here, let's have coffee or something. It was one big family, very open. Everybody's involved in your life and have some kind of influence on your life. Yeah. It was really fun. And I, I really miss those people and those times. But when she died, I think it was, it was really hard for me when she died. Again, as I mentioned in my presentation, I'm a writer and it was my dream to write a novel about Yemen, but this project scared me because it's big, it's history. I mean, I write contemporary children, I write a blog. This required a lot of research. Now, I love doing research. I have a master's degree in literature, but this was big, a big commitment. I wasn't sure that I was ready. But when she died, there was a feeling of urgency that those people are dying. Those people who lived in Yemen remember what happened there and are still alive they're not going to last forever. And if I want to write it, it's now or never. 
And I think also, in a way, it was a way for me to channel my grief into a creative project. It was in a way to hold on to this life that is disappearing. That's amazing. So you said that you did this for a novel. You wanted to write a novel. Yeah, and here's another thing. I started not knowing not knowing much at all. Yeah. <laughs> I just knew some scattered stories from the family. They never connected to the historic context. And to be honest, many times I thought that they were inventing stories. <laughs> It sounded like 1,000 nights in a night. They were too far away remote from our reality. So when I started doing this research, I was in a position that I didn't even know what to ask because I didn't know where to begin. I didn't know anything. A year ago, my whole presentation, this idea that I was presenting, this story, was unknown to me. The small pieces that I knew were very vague in my mind. So I started really like any names that I could get a hold on I would search information and then ask and read what other people were related or places and ask who are those people. I didn't know about the massacre in Aden mm. in December 47. We didn't study it in Israel. I mean, I, I belong to a group of uh, Yemeni in Israel on Facebook and I shared with them my presentation and they were shocked because mm. we all realized that we... In Israel, we studied Ashkenazi history, Jewish-European history, but not much about the Jews of the East, the history of the Jews of the East. So there is a big gap of information here, even for the descendants of those families. We don't know. And I'm not going to blame anyone. I just had a, a conversation with someone in this group this morning. As the Ashkenazi people came from the Age of Enlightenment. They went to universities, they were aware of recording the history, they were involved in different cultural organizations. So they had a whole culture evolved around reserving of the past and their culture. In Yemen, they didn't even record birth dates. Mm. So they weren't very good at recording. They were just happy to live the way they are, not questioning things, just completely believing in their Jewish practice, but not asking questions. And I told this woman that I think now I'm not going to blame anyone, the Ashkenazis or the Yemenis. It was just the result of the culture and the circumstances. But now we are several generations later and we have educated Yemenis. And it's our responsibility to reveal those stories and share them and to record our history. What was the question? <laughs> I started by asking about the novel that you plan to write and right. how that's coming along. So I started doing research And one of the first revelations was about Dr. Olga Feinberg. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fascinating and it was really hard to find information about her. So I started building a plot from the time that she came to Aden in December 46 until a little shortly after the pogrom in December 47. But as I was doing research, I uh, realized that There was organization by the name JDC 
that was involved. So I found them and sent their archive a question if they could help me to understand when the JDC entered Yemen. So they sent me a file with 107 documents and I spent several days going over them and it was very emotional for me. I was just crying, reading and crying. Mm. I didn't understand what was the drama, all the urgency, all the despair that was going on then and all the international influences that the Yemenis there were just trapped because of. So as I started map those documents and get to know more people that were involved, more incidents, more uh, learning about uh, Hashid refugee camp and the doctors who were there, the picture became clearer and then I could really map a bigger picture than I realized that the story started in 44 when the JDC entered Yemen. And that was when the British mandate government in Israel stopped giving certificates to Jews from Yemen in favor of Jews from Europe. So as I was working on my current novel, I realized I actually have material for a trilogy. And now I'm writing the middle one. <laughs> Mm. And I'm not going to stop. It's a lot of work to build the plot for one story. And I don't see myself squeezing this whole story into one novel because there are so many details. It was hard for me to, when I prepared my presentation, it was hard to decide which material I'm going to show and which I have to let go because there is not enough time. Right now, I'm editing this novel. And when I say editing... <laughs> Editing takes a lot more time than the writing. So uh, it's a more intricate job of sometimes I erase a whole sentence, a whole chapter and rewrite it. But I had to go through the first draft to really get to know the plot and the people. Even though I'm very strategic and logistic when I write a novel, I spend a lot of time doing research and writing a very detailed outline. I actually taught uh, a class in uh, Bellevue College how to outline a novel. So I'm very big on outlining. But even with that, when you get to write the first draft, you, you get to discover your characters even more and get to know their conflicts more. You realize what other information you need. But first draft, you have to write very fast, not to let the fear freeze you. <laughs> So I wrote it in six weeks, and, and we're talking about 300 pages novel. So you have to be very disciplined. And now I'm going back, and now I understand my characters more and what I need. So now it's a lot more detailed work that requires more time. But I'm hoping in two months to finish it. That sounds pretty quick to me. <laughs> I have to be quick because there is a lot of information, and you forget because it's such a complex novel, it's the first time that I had to open a document <laughs> and write the characters in each chapter because I forget their names, I forget their age. <laughs> so I have to look at the time. What did I call them? Uh, who are they? Uh, and in the first draft, there was a stage that I forgot and I had no time. So it's like, okay, let's give it a name and then I'll go back and realize what I called this person to begin with. So, yeah, it's a very complex and you have to be in this world 
to continue it, it's really hard for me to disconnect and I forget and then get in. And again, I'm not describing a reality that happens now. I'm describing a reality that happened 75 years ago. So it's really hard. And I mentioned before about the background questions. I started asking stupid questions. I mean, not stupid, but not very deep. Like, what cars did they drive? Who drives the cars? By the way, it was a symbol of status. You didn't drive your own car back then. You hired mm-hmm. the driver. So it was important. What cars? Who, manufact- who manufactured them? Did they have running hot water in the houses in Aden? In Yemen, I know they had none. It was very primitive. I had to learn everything. I had to print maps to find out places and what's the distance between them. There were so many technical details that I needed. Uh, Actually, one of the characters, most of the characters, I found their photos. But one of them, Harry Vitalis, was the manager of the JDC to the Middle East. And I mentioned him in the novel. And I needed a photo of him because as a writer, I'm a whole movie crew. I'm the staging, I'm the actor, I'm the scriptwriter, I'm the director, I'm the photographer. <laughs> I couldn't get any image, so I contacted the JDC photography archivist and he found a rare photo and I was so excited to see an image of this person. I need to remember so many details. And my desk right now is a big mess. I don't even dare organizing it because once I organize things, I don't for, I don't remember where they are. So I have all the maps. I have a big binder with all the articles and letters that are relevant. I have different books on my desk. Some I mentioned in my presentation, they're on my desk because I use them all the time. I need to remind myself. So it's quite a serious campaign. It also sounds like the process of writing, you were talking about how you really just enter into that world. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is, is that another way of connecting to your family? Do you feel connected to them by finding out what their world was like when they were much younger? And I guess connected to that, have you been able to have different conversations with them now that you know more of the historical facts? around that period. Yes, it definitely connected me more with them, even though I'm in Seattle and they're in Israel, but I feel very close to them. I've been always close to them, but now it's even more. And with any new revelation, I would call my aunt or my dad and ask them questions to figure out. And it helped me to connect, as I also mentioned by the end of my presentation, that it was a personal revelation. Finally, all those scattered stories connected. I could set them in a certain time and incident, historical incident, and it was a lot of fun. And for me, it was also personal revelation. I love to tell people that for me, learning history, it's like a collective uh, psychotherapy. <laughs> in psychotherapy, you dig in your past to understand yourself. So for me to dig in the past of my community and their history is to understand our community better and me because I'm part of this community. It was so interesting to understand so much better about our behavior, about our personality, our beliefs, and also my family to understand my aunt and my dad. My dad doesn't remember much. He came as a when he was about four years old to Israel, so he doesn't remember, but he remembers stories. But I got to 
hear stories from my other aunts about Yemen, and it was fascinating. I think this story was a big family project <laughs> because they got all involved with the story. They connected me with other people in the family. It created new connections in the family. I even connected with second cousins to verify some information that I've never been in touch with, but I remember doing research trying to allocate those people, and I got some amazing historical photos. Mm. It's a very exciting project and exciting time, and connects me better with my family and my heritage. Are you putting any family members in your novel? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the opening chapter is based on a family story. Mm. It's actually based on my Aunt Rania's story. It's a story that I wrote in my blog, How She Almost Became the Queen of Yemen. I use it as what is called in literature an um, inciting incident to move the plot to begin. I have three main characters. Each one is from a different country, different background. They all meet together in this hushed camp. I used it, and, I'm, and I use the character of their, her father as my grandfather. Mm. But I changed the names because I'm not going to spoiler alert. I don't, I don't want to ruin something. But I use uh, some family names in the, in the characters. So yes, I do. Wonderful. <laughs> so would it be a spoiler for you to just tell us the story of your Aunt Rania? Uh, no, it's already on my blog. So here is the thing. I grew up hearing many stories, and some of them did not make sense. Since I was younger, I was interested in stories, so I kept on bugging my aunts, like pushing them to tell me what happened. My aunts always told me about their father, how he was very uh, smart person. He was very wealthy. He was uh, a merchant, but he made most of his money from coffee, which is a big industry in Yemen. Unfortunately, we don't get to hear it a lot because of the war now. My eldest aunt, Shoshana, told me that he traveled a lot to Aden for his commerce, and the family is from the region of Taiz. It's in North Yemen. I think it's the biggest city closer to the Aden Protectorate. So when he was in Aden, he got to see lots of things and adopt Western behavior, like the way he dressed like more like a Western person. He learned different manners, brought different products to North Yemen that were not familiar. He saw there's something very strange for him. People sent their girls to school. <laughs> so in North Yemen, it was illegal to have schools for girls. And the only school legal for boys was a madrasa. It was a Muslim school, religious school. And he was uh, quite impressed by the fact that actually in Aden, there were two schools, Jewish schools for girls. One is Salim and another one, I forgot the name of it. And they were both destroyed during the massacre. So he really toyed with the idea of sending my aunt Rania to school there. But then it ended up that he married her and I heard stories that she did not want to get married. She was 12 and uh, she ran away from home, hid in a ruined house somewhere and a Muslim neighbor found her and she told the family and they dragged her and she was kicking and cursing her and the future husband, but they forced her to marry. So it didn't sit well, those two stories, like why, if this what he wanted to do, why did it end up marrying? So then I discovered even bigger story. <laughs> 
In Yemen, all the minorities had to pay poll tax for the Muslim authorities. That was the rule there. And my grandfather, because he was wealthy and he had connections with the royal family, his role was to collect the tax from all the Jewish community. And I don't know if it was just from the Jewish community in the region of Taiz or in all Yemen, I don't know. So he knew the king, the Imam Yehye, and his son, who back then was the governor of Taiz. He knew them personally. And the story, what I was told, it was fascinating stories that one day somebody came to the house. There was a messenger and one of my grandfather's friends at the palace told him that the son of the king is on his way to propose to Rania. He saw her and he wants to marry her. That was for a religious Jewish person to marry his daughter to a Muslim man and she has to convert that. He had to figure out something, so the only way was he talked to his brother, who was, they were good friends, and they were consulting all the time with each other. The only way, it's like, okay, let's find a Jewish person here and marry her before he comes. So then he came, the prince. Of course, he welcomed him, and he said, what can I do for you? And he said, I would like to marry your daughter. And he said, which one of them? Because he had several. And he said, Rania. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, she's already married. Had I known, I would have kept, but that's how it ended. I thought it was a fascinating story. Wow. And I'm using this story in my first chapter. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So this might be a little backward, but we haven't actually talked about the community in Yemen and okay. their history and the history of how they came to Israel. So I was wondering, I know there's a lot there, but could you summarize the community's history and then the history of how they went to Israel? Yeah, it is believed the Jews in Yemen are from the tribe of Judah, that the Babylonian exile to Babylonian, which is now Iraq, when they destroyed the first temple in the 6th century BC. And first they settled in Iraq and then a, f a few families migrated further north and settled down in Yemen. And that happened centuries before Islam was created. Actually, there are some records that at some times there was a Jewish kingdom in Yemen. Because uh, they were so isolated from the world, they are considered to be the most original uh, Jews, like they preserved the Jewish customs from First Temple. Mm. But actually, a more ancient group is Ethiopians, because they moved to Ethiopia before even the temple was destroyed. In Ethiopia, they didn't celebrate more later holidays, like Hanukkah and Purim. Mm. They had only kept the ancient um, holidays. So they settled in Yemen, and for centuries, uh, they were very isolated. There were good times and bad times, like also Jews in Europe experienced. In the 19th century, there was the nationalism movement in Europe, and I guess the Yemenis were involved too with them. So the first Zionist immigration of uh, Jewish Yemenis from Yemen to Israel, what we know now as Israel, happened in 1881. So there was a group from Sharab, which is the region of Taiz, where my family is, that moved to Israel. And back then it was easy, as I showed in my presentation, because Yemen was part of the Ottoman Empire, just like Israel. So for them it was just migrating within the same political entity. But then after World War I, the geography changed, and now the British got control over Israel. 
And now there was disconnect between North Yemen and Israel. They were not part of the same empire. Israel and the Aden Protectorate were part of the British Empire. So now they had to go to Aden, apply as a British government in Aden to get a certificate. And they did, kept on going. And before Israel was independent, 40% of the Jewish Yemeni community was already in Israel. They immigrated by themselves. And it's a fact that I didn't know before I did my research. I always thought that they all came during Operation Magic Carpet, but it wasn't the case. And could they continue, they would have, but then the British government in 39 published the third uh, white book, uh, white paper it's called in English, I'm translating from Hebrew. And it's just a series of policies uh, how they wanted to manage this territory. And in this book, they limited how many Jewish could immigrate to Israel because uh, it just happened after the big Arab revolt between 36 to 39, and they wanted to appease the Arabs. So they decided to limit Jewish immigration. And that happened in 39. And according to those white papers, they would let only 75,000 Jews come in a period of time of five years. And it was a tragic timing because that's a year that World War II started. And in Europe, there were 10 million Jews. <laughs> it didn't scratch the surface of how many Jews could use this certificate. And actually, by the end of those five years, I read that they only utilized about 50,000 of those certificates. Mm. So in uh, 44, when the world already learned about what happened in Europe about the genocide, the British government decided, okay, we have to prefer letting Jews from Europe enter and stop the Jews in Yemen because there is no urgency there. So uh, that's a time when Jews kept on leaving North Yemen, moving to Aden, hoping to get a certificate and move to Israel. They didn't want to settle in Aden. And they got stuck. People kept on coming and people asked me at the presentation, couldn't they send them a letter to let people know? Apparently not, because again, no telephones, no telegrams, nothing. You just, you have to go by foot and they were so scattered, those communities around Yemen, which is huge, the geography. So with no communication, people kept on coming. There were rumors that it's time. And they, of course, they heard about their revival of Israel, all the uh, rebuilding of the state and the uh, attempts to create an independent state. So they were all excited. So they kept on coming to Aden and more and more people and the numbers accumulated and Aden, it's a harsh climate. No water, it trends maybe twice a year or something. And those people came from very, most of the people like Taizis and in mountains, uh, I think in Tanaz even sometimes have snow because it's in the mountains. So to come from very mild weather to very hot desert with no money because they were robbed on the way, no clothing, no food, you're sick, no sanitary conditions. People got sick uh, and died in hundreds. So that time in 44, when the British government in Israel stopped the immigration from Yemen, the British government in Aden realized that they have humanitarian crisis and they asked the JDC, which is a Jewish relief organization, to come in and help. There were all kinds of incidents that happened, but then eventually the next time they could go was actually only after Israel declared its independence and the JDC hired Alaska Air to do the airlift. So that's the 
brief the history. <laughs> the basics, yes. yes. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I am very glad to share this story. The Seattle Moodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamara Lubicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Anat Ben-Shaul. Check out the show notes for a link to a video of her Lemood session and the blog she wrote about her aunt, Rania.